You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Genentech CEO Alexander Hardy joins the Post to discuss the therapeutics the company is developing to combat COVID-19 and why his company is driven to help communities disproportionately affected by the virus. Let's listen. Begin with uh, this week's news about vaccines. Uh, we'll get to some of the specific things that Genentech is doing in a minute, but I think it would be useful for our viewers if you, uh, as a leader in, in this industry, could help us decode the announcements from Pfizer uh, about uh, this phase three trials uh, of its uh, COVID-19 vaccine. And we're expecting in the next uh, day or two uh, an announcement from Moderna, uh, a U.S. company that's got a similar uh, a vaccine with a s- similar uh, uh, structure. Tell us in terms of both safety and efficacy, uh, what you make of the claims that have been uh, made uh, for the Pfizer vaccine and endorsed by none other than uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, not, not a man given to hyperbole. Tell us what your, what your view is. Well, it's tremendously exciting news. I think this is uh, this is something that the whole world has been eagerly uh, awaiting. So it is tremendously exciting, and the, the re- results look really very, very good. Um, so it, it's absolutely wonderful news. There's still there's still a lot um, to come. Uh, there's a lot more we need to know. Uh, I, I think it is important for people to to realize that we need multiple different vaccines from multiple different companies. Um, and then mobilize those globally uh, to really address this pandemic. And I would say the other point, and, and Genentech is a is a company focused on therapeutics. Uh, as you mentioned, part of the Roche Group, and the Roche Group is also focused on diagnostics. So we're therapeutics and diagnostic focused. It's actually gonna take therapeutics, diagnostics, and vaccines uh, for us really to address this pandemic. Uh, I think that's important for us to uh, to realize together with all the public health interventions that uh, by, by now we, we, we should really understand and, uh, and be utilizing uh, to be able to, to um, uh, prevent the spread of this pandemic. So it's really gonna take these, these four interventions uh, for the world to, to get ahead uh, of COVID-19. Let's look, Alexander, at the, the specific uh, aspects of dealing with COVID-19 that your, your company and its parent have, have focused on, starting with, with, with therapeutic treatments. Uh, Genentech this year has had, as I understand it, a partnership with a company called Regeneron to produce uh, a kind of uh, antibody cocktail like that that was given to President Trump. I may be misstating the, the science here, correct me if I am, but I'd be very curious to hear about how you think that research is going, what uh, the Regeneron can do as a therapy for people who've gotten COVID-19 or are showing symptoms, and where that the research is going. Yes, David. I mean, we have, uh, we have 10 drugs uh, in all stages of research and development that we're developing uh, for COVID-19. And uh, a couple of those are part, part of partnerships. And, and one of them, as you, as you rightly say, is with Regeneron. Uh, this is for a uh, monoclonal antibody cocktail. Uh, and uh, we, we basically, you know, we're the largest uh, biologics manufacturer in the world, Genentech. 
the largest site, uh, manufacturing site for biologics in the world is part of our manufacturing network here in California. Uh, and we realized that uh, apart from re research and development, uh, that we could play a very significant role in manufacturing. Um, and monoclonal antibodies, one of the biggest challenges is producing enough uh, of the drug uh, to make a, a difference for this disease. It, it, it requires very high dosages. Uh, we still, there are still studies determining exactly what the dosage is, um, but it looks like it's going to be large dosages required, therefore large amounts of manufacturing uh, capacity required. So we actually were approached and we had discussions with numerous different manufacturers uh, for therapeutics and vaccines. And we really, uh, we really thought deeply about where we could deploy our manufacturing uh, capacity and our capability uh, to have the largest impact. And we actually identified the Regeneron monoclonal antibody in our minds was highly promising um, both in terms of the role it could play in the treatment of uh, uh, severe COVID-19 pneumonia uh, and, and also where um, uh, the, the, the significance of the role that we could play and how we could really significantly impact uh, positively their, their success uh, in uh, producing and distributing the drug. So um, again, this is a monoclonal antibody. Uh, we're, we're there are still studies ongoing um, uh, to figure out where the best point in the disease course uh, it is to deploy this drug. Uh, this alone is not going to be uh, the whole answer. Uh, we're going to need multiple different therapeutics. And in fact, one of our other partnerships uh, is uh, we just recently announced is uh, with another company called Atea for the development of their uh, research, development, manufacturing and distribution uh, of a molecule that they discovered called uh, AT527. Uh, and that is a small molecule therapeutic uh, against COVID-19 uh, with the promise really of, of being potentially being able to intervene when patients first develop symptoms uh, outside a hospital setting. So uh, again, you know, we need therapeutics that, that intervene in all different stages with the very different clinical manifestations that this, this disease uh, this disease has. And tell our, our viewers, Alexander, who uh, I'm sure are feeling the anxiety uh, the whole world is as we look at this winter spike uh, of uh, coronavirus infections, what we can expect over the course of the next several months in terms of therapeutics. Uh, the Regeneron uh, monoclonal antibody cocktail that was given to President Trump, as I understand it, is, is still in the early experimental phase. What's going to be available to people over the next three or four months if they get sick that's going to help them get better? Well, there are already uh, therapeutics that have received uh, emergency use authorization. So, of course, there's remdesivir, uh, we're also, that's from uh, the company Gilead, uh, also a, a California-based biotech company, and we're also partnering with them on one of our molecules in combination with remdesivir. Uh, so that is uh, already available and now approved uh, by the FDA. Uh, Lilly just recently received uh, emergency use authorization for their monoclonal antibody. Uh, and uh, Regeneron and ourselves are in uh, discussions with the FDA over emergency use authorization for the monoclonal antibody cocktail that uh, you just mentioned. 
Uh, and I expect that, uh, you know, should those discussions be positive, you know, those therapeutics uh, could be a very significant part of um, intervening and managing the disease. Uh, in the meantime, uh, as you also mentioned, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see the, uh, the Pfizer uh, vaccine and then we're eagerly awaiting uh, the, the data uh, and then hopefully the approvals of various other vaccine technologies. And then there's just a, an enormous number of other therapeutics that are uh, in various stages of, of being studied um, for, uh, for, for, for treatment at various stages of, of the disease. And, you know, the, the, the oral, I think, is, is going to be a very important uh, potential advance. That, that is further out. Uh, so nearer term, it will be monoclonal antibodies, uh, uh, drugs that address the inflammatory stage of the disease, uh, and uh, and uh, also um, uh, remdesivir. And Alexander, there's one anti-arthritis drug that you have uh, produced under the name uh, Acterma, if I have that right. Its formal name is tocilizumab, uh, which has had, uh, it's it seen positive results in treating patients, although the studies on that are mixed. Is that something that you're hopeful, hopeful for? Well, David, um, the, the drug is Ectemra, uh, and you did, a, you did a wonderful job uh, pronouncing the, uh, the, the generic name, tocilizumab. And, and yes, we've been, we've been studying this right from the very early days of, of, the, of the pandemic. Uh, we first heard anecdotal reports from China and Italy uh, from, uh, from clinicians who are using it to address the cytokine release syndrome stage of the disease. This is uh, in the patients in the latter part of the disease where they, they get a, a significant immune response um, uh, triggered by the, 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 the virus. Uh, and uh, you have to damp down the immune response. That's, that's the hypothesis. Uh, and we very quickly um, developed phase three studies. Um, it's really important. I think it's one of the learnings that I, I think that we have as a society uh, around COVID is that nothing um, replaces uh, robust, well-controlled clinical studies to really answer the question of the clinical utility of uh, interventions. Uh, and so it was really important that we, we had those phase three studies uh, and uh, a number of them have now read out um, and we've discussed those results with the FDA. Uh, the results are mixed. There's some uh, positive endpoints and findings uh, and some negative findings. Uh, and so we continue those discussions with the FDA. And, and, and specifically, uh, we're waiting for another phase three study, which is looking at the combination of, of Ectemra with remdesivir. This is the Remdacta study. Uh, and that will be uh, an important to see if there's a an additive or synergistic effect uh, between the two medications in, again, treating uh, patients in the more severe stage uh, of the disease. And we should get those results uh, in the first part of next year. And so that will be uh, very important to see those uh, findings. And then we'll, of course, uh, discuss them with the FDA and about uh, and, and, and uh, determine, you know, what role, if any, does this drug have in the treatment of COVID? There's one more therapy I want to ask you to comment on for our viewers, and that's uh, the nasal spray that it's said uh, could be sprayed in your nostrils and and uh, have the effect of killing the virus 
uh, right at that point where you may be acquiring it. Do you think that's a promising approach? You know, David, I, I don't know enough about that, but I would say that it's, it, you know, as, as I just mentioned, it, it's just so important that we really rely on well-controlled clinical studies. Uh, there is obviously so much uh, pain, suffering, and in many cases, false hope uh, provided uh, as, as people grasp for potential solutions. And it's, of course, it's, it's very nice to think that something quite simple but could be quite effective. Um, but this is a really difficult uh, disease. Uh, we're still learning so much about it. And so I would, uh, I would really encourage people to, to really rely on, on the evidence and uh, to, to be patient whilst we really understand what works and what doesn't. We, we've learned so much and we still have a lot to learn. And one more question about, uh, about therapies before we turn to diagnostics. As we look at the statistics, we, we see these stunning uh, rates of infection now well above 140,000 new cases a day. But thank goodness, the, the death rates are, are very substantially lower. They're on the order of 1,400 a day or something like 1%, a little over 1%. Uh, what should we draw from that? We remember in the early days uh, of this pandemic, uh, death rates as high as 5%. Are we seeing the product of, of uh, knowledge among, among doctors, among, among your pharmaceutical industry about how to take better care of people that are leading to significantly lower death rates? Well, David, it's a, it's a very interesting and important question. And uh, the, the answer is we don't know definitively, um, but I think what you said, which is we're learning and we're treating these patients uh, more effectively, we definitely have better interventions, is it would make sense that that's uh, part of the reason. Another reason though, uh, is the, uh, the, the, the population that, that's getting the disease at this stage uh, is a younger population, uh, a younger, fitter population that, that um, generally has a, a better prognosis uh, when infected. So there are a whole number of different factors but I can definitively say that we are certainly learning uh, a lot about how best to treat this disease and um, healthcare professionals do have more tools than they did uh, in the earliest phase of this, uh, of this disease. So now let's talk about, about diagnostics that will tell us, tell people whether they have COVID-19 or they don't have it, uh, often just as important. And, whether you see uh, new uh, technologies moving fast enough that someday soon uh, we'll be able to get much uh, quicker on-scene, on on-site results. I was listening last night to Dr. Francis Collins, the head of the National Institutes of Health, who was talking about his dream uh, of just a routine morning check to see before you go to work whether you have the virus, like brushing your teeth. You'll have something you can just, you know, swab your nose with or in some way measure and get a, a result that quickly. And then you'll know today it's safe for me to go to work. Today I, I need to stay home. Do you see something like that uh, coming in the, in the near term? And I mean by sometime, let's say, in the middle of next year. You know, I think, uh, as I mentioned before, I think it's going to be 
a combination of, of testing, therapeutics and vaccinations that's going to really allow us to get ahead of this disease and return life to normalcy, which is, is something we all are just really uh, striving for and yearning for. Um, and I think that the that, that, that testing technologies are at a really exciting stage right now. Um, absolutely, uh, what we need are uh, tests which are really widely available uh, at the, the, the point of care or self-administered that, that give results very, very quickly. Um, you know, the, 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 the disease we know that the, the issue, a large part of the issue is uh, asymptomatic spreaders. Uh, and so with proactive, regular, rapid testing, uh, we can identify those, those people and we can prevent uh, the, the, the spread of the disease. So um, I, I do think the technology is moving very quickly. Uh, you know, our parent company, uh, the, the Roche Group has Roche Diagnostics. We, we, act, we actually have five different COVID-19 tests. Uh, as of October, we've delivered more than 30 million of them. The initial tests were laboratory-based, uh, highly accurate PCR tests. Um, the latest developments that, that we're working on are more rapid uh, tests at the point of care, um, uh, easier to administer, uh, eventually, hopefully self-administered um, uh, and easy to administer and producing those rapid results. And I do think that's that's going to be enormously important stage uh, of getting ahead of this, this disease. And I'd ask you what advice you'd give on this question of, of, of testing uh, and related issues of, of travel and, and social contact to are many thousands of viewers who are trying to make plans for Thanksgiving and wondering, should I uh, go see my relatives this year? Should I get tested beforehand? Should I get tested after I arrived? I don't want to ask you to be a public uh, health advisor, but you know a lot about, about testing and what's available. What would be some basic advice you'd give to your family, say, uh, based on what you know? Well, I think every family is having that having that discussion. If they're not, they should be having that discussion and, and, and thinking really carefully. And, and I am not a public health uh, uh, official. Uh, and of course, we should be primarily, we should all be listening to them, but then having those discussions. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's tremendous excitement about the vaccine uh, developments. There are excitement about the therapeutics. Um, we can't get ahead of ourselves right now. That's, that's what I would, I would say. That's this discussion that I'm having with my own family. Uh, with two daughters in, in college who potentially are coming home with um, the, the usual group that we have Thanksgiving that, that have uh, elderly family members. Um, you know, we're not going to have a, a normal Thanksgiving uh, this year. That's just the reality of where we are with this, uh, this, this disease at this stage. I want to ask you about one of the most painful uh, issues associated with the COVID-19 pandemic, and that's the unequal impact it's had on, on communities of color, among uh, poor socioeconomic groups. And it's, a, it's a, a deeply disturbing aspect of this pandemic. I know that your company is trying hard to think about ways to lessen this uh, differential, this, this especially harsh impact. Talk a little bit about this problem and how you at Genentech are thinking about how to respond to it. 
You know, I think this is one of the tragedies of the pandemic. We've it's really brought into sharp focus uh, the issue of health inequity um, and the issues in, in our healthcare system. We obviously have a virus which is uh, disproportionately uh, impacting uh, minority populations, but underlying that uh, uh, structural uh, and other issues in, in our healthcare system. We, we uh, th this, this has been overall an area we've been uh, focused on as a, as a company and in, in the other disease areas uh, that we uh, we uh, uh, are in, uh, like neuroscience and, and cancer. Um, but we saw very early on that this was an issue in, in COVID. We saw the worst health outcomes in minority populations. Uh, and then we also saw that there were access issues uh, in those populations for the, the initial therapeutics and, and, and studies. And uh, so again, you know, um, studies that are, that are representative of the populations in the US is already an issue. And then we saw in COVID that this was, was potentially gonna be even worse in a disease where we knew those, those underrepresented populations were gonna have worse health outcomes. So uh, we mobilized immediately on this topic. Uh, and actually we, we set up a, a specific phase three of one of our most advanced uh, therapeutics in development for COVID specifically to recruit underrepresented populations. Uh, and we did this in the midst of the pandemic and we successfully enrolled that study. It was actually the fastest enrolling study uh, in the history of, uh, of our company. And uh, we managed to recruit 85% of the study population were underrepresented populations. Uh, so largely Hispanic, Latinx, African-American, and actually also Native American. Uh, perhaps most interesting for your, for your listeners, the largest recruiting site uh, of the entire study was in New Mexico on the edge of the Navajo Nation. Um, and uh, so, you know, this, this is, this is a, a challenging situation. This, this exposes problems with our system. But what I'm really inspired by is that we've been in the middle of this. We've been able to work with HCPs, with healthcare providers and with the community to mobilize a study and do it really well and, and produce a result. And I think these learnings are going to carry on post the pandemic. That's my expectation. Uh, certainly, we will carry those learnings forward. And I hope that that uh, research and development of, of drugs will be a lot more equal and equitable uh, going forward. And, and what do you say, Alexander, what have you learned to say to people from minority groups or, or just folks who, who lack trust in the medical establishment, who, who are suspicious of vaccines, who feel that they're being experimented upon. There is a deep mistrust out there, some extraordinary numbers suggesting 50% of the, the people won't want to take a vaccine when it becomes available. How do you build trust, or I'll say rebuild trust, uh, in, in science uh, and therapies that can be helpful among people who have this deep suspicion? Well, David, I think you're really getting to a very fundamental uh, question. I think trust is uh, what we need to really build. And part of that is, is by working together at the very, very outset 
of research and development. We, we have to include them in the, uh, uh, in the research phase. Uh, we have to include them in the design of our studies. Uh, and then we have to go out and work in, in partnership with lots of stakeholders to really engage with these communities. There, there is distrust uh, and it's going to take time to, to overcome uh, th that distrust of the healthcare system. There is a distrust of the healthcare system and it, and it, it is a, uh, an issue. So I, I, I did in, in earlier in our talk, we, we talked about partnerships uh, between companies. Uh, I've hinted at the really important topic of partnerships between companies and the government. I mean, the FDA has been a tremendous partner and as has Bardo, which is a, a very important uh, part of, of mobilizing research and development in the United States. But we also need to partner at the local community level to be able to address these, these more fundamental challenges. So when we look at the discrepancies in, in terms of utilization, whether it's of vaccines or therapeutics, uh, we really need to get to the root cause of it. Sometimes we think it's, it's, it's only about affordability and affordability is part of it. Part of it is distribution, but part of it and a large part of it is trust. And uh, as you talk about, you know, whether it's therapeutics, whether it's vaccinations or whether it's diagnostics, all of those require trust uh, amongst the community to fully embrace um, them in the fight uh, against COVID-19. Last uh, night uh, in conversation with, with Dr. Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, I, I heard Dr. Luciana Borio, uh, uh, prominent uh, infectious disease specialist, who's a member of President-elect Biden's coronavirus task force speak. You can, you can watch this on YouTube. The Washington National Cathedral uh, sponsored the discussion. But Dr. Broyer was fascinating in talking about the ways in which the president-elect's group is beginning to think about, about how to deal with this deepening crisis of the, of the pandemic this winter. And I want to ask you, perhaps as a, as a closing question, what thoughts you have as the CEO of a key company in our uh, biotech pharmaceutical space uh, that, that might be useful for the, the the Biden task force and for everybody who's thinking about how we how we do this better, what should be on the do's and don'ts list uh, as we have a new uh, administration preparing to think about what to do? You know, I, I think the uh, you know we we've had a, a good uh, partnership with the, the the current coronavirus task force, and, and again, partnership is is really critical. So. I would uh, really encourage them, and I expect this this would be the case, uh, to really embrace partnership, um, encourage partnerships uh, between companies. As I mentioned, you know we believe, and 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 that's been a very big part of our our, our focus has been partnership between companies, but also partnerships between the private and the public sector. Um, so uh, lean in with us. Uh, and also think about the full continuum of, of all the different interventions. Um, again, diagnostics, therapeutics, vaccinations, and other public health uh, interventions, uh, and make sure we're moving together on, on advancing the, the movement on all those on those different fronts. So um, I, I think probably partnership would be my uh, would be my 
uh, my key message. We we are fully mobi mobilized uh, as a company uh, in all aspects of COVID, uh, and uh, we're fully committed to to making a significant difference against that disease. But we know we can't do it alone. Uh, we need partnership. Um, so that would be the, the the key message that I would deliver them. And in the half a minute we have left, just briefly want to ask you, it sounds like your industry may have changed uh, in some permanent way in, in its dealings with each other, its dealings with the government. Is that is that the feeling you have uh, as you as you look at Genentech and other companies? I, I absolutely do, David. I think this has been, um, whilst this has been enormously challenging for, for the whole world, uh, there are some positives that are going to come out of this. You know, when we uh, work together towards a, a, a common goal, um, you know, we, we have unlikely, unlikely partnerships. Uh, we have partnerships with, with government uh, and we're working in ways that we've never worked before and it speeds we've never worked before. And we're addressing issues like health inequity with a seriousness of intent and a sense of urgency that I've never seen before. So I, I think that things will not be the same after the pandemic. Uh, what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do it. And, and I believe also our success uh, will be increased as a result of the learnings and the, and the changes that we've had to adopt uh, as a result uh, of, of fighting this pandemic together. Well, I, I want to thank uh, Alexander Hardy, the, the CEO of Genentech. It's so useful, I think, for our viewers as we head into this difficult winter to hear from the people who know the most uh, about uh, these new therapies, uh, new drugs, and, and just walk us through uh, what we can expect. So we, we, we thank uh, Alexander. Uh, next up on Washington Post Live on Monday, my colleague Jonathan Capehart will interview Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. On Tuesday, we'll have a Chasing Cancer special uh, and Harley Finkelstein, president of the commerce company Shopify. Uh, until then, uh, have a good weekend. We look forward to seeing you next week at Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.